but yeah, as a general rule, you want to have a, a dynamic geofence around the user, which follows them. So we call it a safety bubble for purposes of marketing. And that safety bubble, when that interacts with the hazard or risk, that's when it triggers alerts for the worker. Hi, and welcome to another episode of the Mapscaping Podcast. My name is Daniel, and this is a podcast for the geospatial community. Today, I'm talking to Clint, and Clint comes to us from a company called Safer Me, and at Safer Me, they've devised a system where they can deliver personalized risk assessment and risk alerts to users based on their location. It's a really interesting idea, and I hope you enjoy the interview. Welcome, Clint. Thank you so much for taking the time to do this interview with me today. I really appreciate it. Um, now, you've started a company, or you're the you're the founder of a company called Safer Me. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Yeah, yeah. No worries, Daniel. Thanks for having me. Um, Safer Me is Safer Me uses data to protect people at work. So, eight hundred twenty thousand injuries happen at work every day, and we try to stop people being injured by warning them before something happens um, might well be a, uh, a warning about an asbestos location it might be a dangerous dog perhaps it's a lightning strike some sort of specific piece of data that's really quite relevant to the worker to keep them safe i think the the key thing here that we're kind of the, the people listening to this podcast are interested in is is geospatial and the thing that really interests me about what you're doing is that safe for me is uh like giving a risk assessment based on uh, the location of the worker. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we try to give the worker something incredibly relevant to them, which means location. So we have to track where the worker is rel- relative to hazards and risks and then assess how dangerous the particular hazard or risk is at the time the worker's there. And that's that's primarily what Safer Me does. Obviously, in order to do that, we have to allow the worker to record all of their risks and hazards that they see as part of their standard health and safety and OSHA process. Depending on which country you're in, they have different acronyms for the safety processes that exist in that country. So that's that's our role, yeah. So it sounds like the, the system needs a lot of data to sort of to, to work. So it's one thing that they're recording their own data. They're, let's say um, they're out on an oil field or something like that, see a hazard, record it, and that's great. That's there for everybody else. But there must be some sort of base data that you also need in the system for, for it to work, for it to be able to give like a, an accurate risk assessment depending on location. Yeah, exactly. And there's certain data that's better than others. And w- whether that's via coverage or that is the most relevant. So, for example, if we take Lightning as a, a data set that's actually one of the better data sets you can get hold of. Um, it's global by nature, all measured in real time. And well, 98% of lightning is measured with relative accuracy in real time. So we can take those lightning strike locations and then uh, try and calculate the risk of the next lightning strike for the worker. And particular workers care a lot about it. So, I mean, me, for me and you, lightning is kind of an interesting thing. It's, it's spectacular, but it's not something that's likely to kill us in our day-to-day job. Whereas if you're a worker that's on a metal object, a crane, um, perhaps servicing high wires, oil and gas, these people can be killed by lightning. There's 20,000 lightning deaths per year. So our job is to try and compute where the next lightning strike is likely to be and to obviously put some 
error bars around that and then warn the person um, before that happens to them. Yeah, that sounds like an amazing data set to look at and a very dynamic data set. So I'm thinking that this this is something that's updated constantly. It's not a it's not a static system. It's not uh, enter data once and forget about it. You must have some kind of rules around how the the temporal nature of data. Yeah, I mean, there's there's so much data. So we specifically are interested in time bound location bound data that's relevant for safety. And then even within that small subset, there's really four distinct types of data and the way we think about it is it's just a simple two by two matrix of data types that are relevant for safety um i could explain it for you <laughs> i'd have to draw it out for you but it, that's if you imagine the two by two matrix it's uh, in one column you have machine or internet of things data and the next column you have human data and then your two rows would be um, open or freely available data and then there's private data and say for me has different methods to collect and share those four types but within the data type so to give you an example lightning would fit within internet of things proprietary or private data um, something like fire or emergency information is typically open in internet of things or machine-based and then you have crowdsourced human data where the worker just pushes the button and quickly takes a photo of whatever the problem is. Um, so there's various data types and it, all of it is, is time bound and location bound. Um, and it's specifically relevant to different types of workers. So in its own right, it's, it's kind of a niche, super geeky area of data. Yeah, I think anytime you're trying to um, work with risk data, like risk is so is so personal as well. I'm assuming though you're gonna the organization, whoever is buying the system and is going to set it up for their workers, has some sort of uh, standards around risk. These are these are dangerous. These are less dangerous. These are these present no risk to us. So I can imagine that if they come with their own data, for example, that that data is already categorized. But I think in general, risk risk is quite an interesting, would be a really interesting data set to, to work with. Yeah, and, and then even within that, so there's always the danger itself and then there's the risk and they're actually subtly different data sets. So if you take the lightning example, there's the lightning strike, so the point-based data, and then from that strike, we calculate the risk of the lightning. Um, and if, if we're dealing with, say, a different, totally different data cornerstone, something like mine shafts or sinkholes, which we we obviously sell to clients or help clients avoid as well, um, there's a mine shaft, and say it's a 200 meter mine shaft straight down. There's certain people who care a lot about not falling into that hole, that shaft, and the risk of the shaft is actually slightly larger than the hole itself. And that's an extreme example. At the other end, and if you have something like a fire, for example. The fire has a location and then there's the risk of the fire, which is typically downwind of the fire. So there's always the risk of the thing and then the thing itself. Um, and you have to have both and then track where the worker goes and give them an indication of the risk they're experiencing relative to the job that they're about to do. So it sounds like we're dealing with a, a lot of sort of geofencing here. Um, but I think in terms of lightning and fire, for example, it would have to be a dynamic geofence, would it not? Like I mean, they, these things move; they, they they're not static. Of course, yeah. So light, lightning's a nice um, a nice case. Where fire tends to be broken down by regions. So some some regions or provinces are quite good at releasing real time fire data. 
Some regions have you know 20 minute delays and point based data, which is not as good. So it really depends. <clears throat> different data has different quality globally. Um, but yeah, as a general rule, you want to have a, a dynamic geofence around the user, which follows them. So we call it a safety bubble for purposes of marketing. And that safety bubble, when that interacts with the hazard or risk, that's when it triggers alerts for the worker. And what could that alert look like? I'm assuming this is uh, something like an app that is running on my phone, so it's a, it's a portable device. Yeah, exactly. So you're pushing you're pushing alerts to the worker over the best method you can. So t- typically an app, so the client will have their own branded safety app, basically, it's what we deliver. Um, but it might be pushed over some other interface to the worker as well. But you have, we have to have their location as a starting point. Yeah. Hey, um, I was thinking about this. We, we talked about this the other day in our, in our pre-interview. And I was thinking about uh, leveraging uh, infrastructure as well, because infrastructure could present a risk. And specifically what I was thinking about is the OpenStreetMap data set. And I was thinking about uh, roads and traffic mm-hmm. and, and that kind of thing. Now, it sound, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm guessing here, but when you're talking about sinkholes and mine shafts, we're talking about people that are out in the field somewhere. Would, would that sort of mm-hmm. uh, infrastructure be, be relevant to, to risk? Yeah, I mean, yes and no. Some, some clients upload their own shape files to give the worker more context. So if you think of it, think of it from the user's point of view, they're staring down at a map with their location. They can see risks around them. They can click on the risk and, and understand what that risk is. And then behind the scenes, we're obviously measuring that experience and providing proof for the company that that worker has been made aware of a risk as they go about their job. So that takes care of a lot of obligations for the business automatically. But um, the actual infrastructure itself, we try to stay away from shape files, which we do have them on the system for context. We do try and stay away from asset tracking because that's a whole different area, a whole separate niche, which is complicated in its own right. Um, although there is some overlap. So I hope I haven't... Uh, confused you or not confused you you know you know what you're talking about but i haven't been confusing to an outsider i guess um but things like things like heavy machinery we can see that happening so tracking where heavy machinery is relatively to the user and then having some interaction between the geofences of each the machine and the and the user and giving both sides alerts where needed that's kind of inevitable but not quite where the market is yet do you think that kind of thing will will sort of will, will come with time when we start moving into the the Internet of Things, where every sort of device communicates with every other device? Where you know that that'll just be an expected thing. That of course, oh that that uh, heavy earth mover is backing. They can't see me, but I have a device in my pocket, so it's sending out push notifications to everything within you know a certain radius. Yeah, I mean, if you if you zoom right out, inevitably the virtual world protects people in the in the real world. Um, but if you zoom into where we are today, it's pretty easy as product people like us to forget that workers in the field, your blue collar uh, engineer, welder, plumber, roofer, scaffolder, these people, they're only just getting phones. Like the phones that are being rolled out are being rolled out last year, this year, and next year. So we've had smartphones for, well, I mean, I'm, I'm generalizing here, but I know I've had a smartphone for five odd years, maybe seven. Um, but the workforce is only just getting these. So the the products that we need to deliver, while they can be advanced um, 
just doing the simple things well is actually really quite valuable from a sales perspective. So that means, you know, simply and easily recording risks and hazards from the worker's point of view just on a phone, although we can experiment with all sorts of other technology, I think, um, I think being pretty specific and useful is important. Absolutely. And I think that's a really interesting observation that it's perhaps not necessarily the, the technology that's holding us back here. It's, it's more of a cultural barrier. You know, uh, people need to get used to these applications and get used to using them. And w- when we do that, that'll open up more doors as well. But maybe it's important not to push the envelope right at the start in terms of introducing too much and, and maybe even uh, over-engineering something, if you know what I mean. Absolutely. So in the beginning, when we do a rollout, for example, if you think about a rollout as a population of people to to roll out to, there's a tech adoption curve within, say, a population of 5,000 users. Those first 14% of early adopters, they're actually quite keen on the new technology, but you've still got laggards within your business environment that you have to get them used to using the technology. So we'll always present it in the beginning as being an easier alternative and not force force use of the phone because um, primarily our competition's paper. So you're talking about people in the field with clipboards trying to write down where dangerous dogs are and you know asbestos and all sorts of hazards. And that whole process needs to be automated, obviously. Um, and the future of the process they have isn't a better paper form. It's not a digital version of what they're doing. It's actually just automating it all the way with data itself. Um, and that's, that's say, for me's role. Yeah, I, again, I think that's a really good observation. And I think being in the tech industry, in the geospatial industry, uh, it's moving so fast and we can do so much, but it's important to remember to take the user with us, you know, to remember the user journey instead of charging off out there into the sunset. We can do this and Internet of Things and, you know, um, um, and blockchain and everything else and big data and use all these acronyms and frighten these people away because without them, you know, without their adoption, then then we can't do the exciting things and solve the problem either. So it's really important to remember that user journey. I, I just want to say one, one more thing here. Uh, I really like the idea that this is solving two problems or two problems that I see anyway. You're keeping people safer. You're providing that sort of very personalized service you know a a personalized safety message to someone you know for them saying this is relevant to you not relevant to everyone this is relevant to you and at the same time you're fulfilling a lot of um, documentation Mm -hmm. you know you're providing that documentation which is becoming increasingly important and this whole thing is sort of automated oh we did send that message to dave he was told before he Mm -hmm. went into that area that we you know we had an obligation to warn him and and we've done that and we can Mm -hmm. prove it Exactly, and that's the type of thing you can only really do spatially. So we're um, we're quite unusual. I mean, health and safety and OSHA are relatively um, backwater areas. I mean, no offense to the people working in those areas building software, but the, the, those areas of software are even more backwards than normal areas. Um, and I think anyone on this podcast is really into location and geodata and geospatial, but... Um, safety is really not Um, and it is something that we have to in the beginning we really had to educate people around why delivering location specific information to every single person relevant to them is important Um, the situational awareness of the worker essentially so that they can make informed and smart decisions like that that was a real education process but nowadays 
Um, people are much more used to concepts like Google Maps, um, all the things that this audience has probably been been seeing for 10 or 15 years, the rest of the public's catching up with. Yeah, and it's really interesting that you say that there's been a whole lot of education around this because in some ways we're very much used to having a personalized experience. When we, go, we use Google, for example, Google personalizes the things we see, you know, depending on our, our search queries, our search history, and our, and our location. And so you think that, but I, I guess the thing is with, with Google perhaps and, and other systems is that it's hidden away. Not, they haven't run out and said, to, hey, we're personalizing based on your location. But here you're, you're saying that, and I wonder if that's that's the true barriers. People think, oh, location, wow, what what's going on here? Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, it, it is is a new thing for for the safety sphere, but it, it kind of can't be the pro the problem that exists at the moment is so large that it has to be really solved by delivering ultra relevant data to the person at the right time. Um, it just so happens that there's so much data to choose from that we have to be relatively careful what we deliver the person um, and exactly how, because some people don't want to accept as many alerts as others. Um, but the, we think the problem can be solved, so we're just going about it step by step, really. Yeah. I think um, you're talking about ultra-relevant data, and you're right, it is ultra-relevant, and I can, that's the, probably the only approach that's going to work in this situation. But it also raises a few questions around data privacy, for example. I don't think anyone out there really wants to be tracked, or at least they don't want to be told that they're being tracked. How, how do you get around uh, some of those issues around data privacy and maybe infringing on, on workers' privacy? Yeah, there's, there's two major areas there. Um, one is that we don't tell the business where the worker is, but the worker knows that we know where they are. And so we're sort of an intermediary between the business itself and the worker. Um, what we found is that the worker, workers don't want to communicate at all times where they are to their company, and the company is in charge of keeping the worker safe. So it's the company that pays us essentially, but even so, we don't tell the company where the worker is. Um, and then secondly, there's some privacy issues around the hazards themselves. And our position on that is that hazards don't have privacy rights, people do. So. What we, what we find is with all these workers basically scurrying around recording and taking photos of these hazards, a lot of businesses in the beginning don't necessarily want to share their hazards. Um, they see it as information that might put them at risk, but it's actually the other way around. There's, there's, a, there's a fundamental need for these businesses to share their hazards and risks because, um, say, for example, if the public or another worker gets injured, by the hazards the business already knows about, it puts them in at great legal risk. Um, so we do try and encourage customers to share their risks, but they don't have to. So that's a little bit of a transition that tends to happen with each customer. Okay, so so it sounds like what you're trying to create there is like a, a like a crowdsourced data set of, of risk between the between these different organisations. Is is that a correct way of sort of thinking of it? Exactly. It can't, the problem can't really be solved without data sharing. It just so happens that some parts of the safety process are incredibly private to a business and some parts can be shared quite easily um, and certain hazard types are much easier to share. So a good example, um, something that's right on the edge actually is something like dangerous dogs. Um, something that's easy for a business to share is something like a mine shaft. So where it's not, it's not doesn't have a, a person, a people component to the data 
And so they're quite comfortable sharing that from one business to another across the system. Um, and then there's other data types where we have to strip out various metadata pieces to allow it to be shared between one company or, or another. Because it, when you're dealing with these massive businesses, they have offshoots and subsidiaries and all sorts of workers within their own business that aren't aware of all the risks the business itself knows about. And that that's actually really dangerous. Um, so what we find is these big businesses already have Internet of Things programs. They're already collecting data. They already know about every asbestos location in the United States, for example. And then one of the, they're tracking all this and adding to it in a control room type setting. And then the workers are out in the field and someone gets exposed to this risk and gets injured. Um, inevitably, there's a discovery process after the injury. There's a legal process and then the business, business gets sued um, and has to settle. And it's not that the business didn't want to tell the worker, their own person, about the problem. It's just they weren't equipped to do it. Um, so with whatever the data is, it's our job to try and share it with the right person at the right time. And that's um, that's our role, really. Yeah, and I think, uh, and again, we're getting back to this idea of this personalized experience, like what is relevant for you in this location? And also, uh, again, that idea of solving two problems at once, like providing the personalized experience, risk mitigation, and the documentation. Mm -hmm. Exactly. The, the admin load is so high to solve safety if you're doing it via the traditional method that it just actually can't be done properly. So if you think about the, the 820,000 people who are injured every day, you know, injuries and accidents, we think of it as, as, as inevitable, but um, 50 years from now, people aren't going to die on the roads. People are very going to be very unlikely to be injured at work. And the real question is, how do we go about solving it? Um, and it's got to come through a shared data set and specific alerting for each person. Um, and at the moment, we start on the margins where we have good data and we have the technology to deliver the right alert at the right time. But in the future, we'll obviously have better tracking, better data, better systems for delivering alerts. Um, so it can be solved. It's just, just going to take some time. Yeah, uh, immediately I start thinking about an open street map of, of, of risk data that everyone updates across the world and it's crowdsourced and, and giving us this amazing sort of base layer of, of information to, to work from. Hey, uh, so we've talked a little bit about the problems that you're solving and how you're doing it and the data that's involved and why you're doing it that way. Can you give us an idea of what kind of organizations or maybe industries are, are using this? Yeah, so typically utilities and infrastructure managers. Um, we do get pulled into mining so um, and other, other sectors as well, but utilities and infrastructure tend to be the best, mainly because the workers are distributed. They're often, often large teams of people in offline areas and those particular types of businesses we're very good at servicing them um, in the long run I mean when I say long run five to ten years from now when location tracking is much more accurate indoors outdoors multi-floor then we can really start targeting pretty much everyone but in the short run we have to be thoughtful around who we target and who we sell to so um, utilities and infrastructure for, for example um, Vodafone which is a large telecommunications company or Veolia which is a um, a water infrastructure manager out of Paris. Um, so these these companies are typically large global corporates. Um, and touching on, I guess, the mention of an open street map of hazards and risks, what you've what we've found is that individuals don't typically search to be safer. So you could create such a thing and 
um, we'd be for it because we'd be able to use that data to keep workers safe. But an individual themselves is unlikely, in our view, to search for safety. What what they would be relatively happy to do if it's relevant is receive or actively be given alerts that are relevant to them. Um, the technology is not quite there to do that yet. Um, but businesses, businesses will pay to keep their staff safe. And that's that's why we do what we do. We Our role with how we structure the business is to try and generate as much money or revenue as we can based off the best data we can get so that we can leverage that to get more data into the system to solve the problem. Um, so we try and do we try to build a repeatable business model that uses and solves a real issue, um, uses data and solves a real issue. Yeah, that sounds like the basis for a sustainable business. Um, I wanted to come back to a point that you made earlier, and that was you talked about in the future there'll be much better tracking available. When you talked about it inside, uh, inside and outside, and there's definitely a an issue there with tracking on inside, inside buildings. And the issue is that that accurate positioning of, of data or of a person's location relative to that data. I've been lucky enough to talk to a few companies that that are working on that field there of positioning inside. Mm -hmm. And it was really interesting to note uh, that they, I asked them, well, how how can we describe this? What's it going to look like in the future? And the response was, it's going to look like, you know, all the options you have in terms of positioning on the outside, that's what we're going to have on the inside. So all those options of positioning, uh, locating things and routing of things. Yeah. And so, I mean, I think the future is really bright for that, for the, for the geospatial industry in general and, and in what you're doing. And I think when you can cross over, seamlessly cross over from the outside to the inside and expect the same amount of, or the same level of coverage and accuracy, it's going to be a really interesting time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't know what to say to that other than yes. I mean, it's, it's pretty exciting what's coming. I We sort of stick to, stick to our knitting. So we, we get asked sometimes to try and deliver solutions that would work indoors. Um, but that's just a whole, whole different area. Um, and there's so many businesses already focused on it that we will try and stay away from it until someone else solves it and then come in and help people be safe in those environments as well. Um, so yeah, at, at the moment we just stick to our repeatable business model we've already got really. Yeah. Um, just before we, we wind up the conversation here, I've just got a few more questions and these questions all sort of look out into the future. And one of them is about the internet of things. How do you think that's going to change things? Like obviously it's going to, in terms of what you're doing today, obviously we're going to have more data available, but is more data automatically going to mean a better service or a, a safer world? Interesting. Um, not yes, but there's some things that need to be built alongside it. Um, and a, a, bit, a few realizations are coming. I mean, I think mentioned just before that these big companies have internet, like they have specific internet of things programs. So to put sensors out into their network of infrastructure and gather more data, and, and sometimes they gather safety data, and when that's the case, um, they're just starting to realize that that's putting them at legal risk if they don't share that in real time, because there's some latency, basically, between when a hazard is recorded and when a worker's warned, and if there's an injury in that time, that's that's a bad thing for the business. They're, they can be found to have already known about something they didn't warn their worker to. So there's that's coming, which we can see, because that's the space we're in. 
um, when it comes to the amount of data that's there, the problem isn't so much the data, the problem is the interface between the data and the user. So people don't, <laughs> when I'm walking down the street or when you're walking down the street, you don't constantly look to, t to see if you're at risk of being struck by lightning. Um, or if you do, you're an interesting person. Um, but the systems that we build should be doing that on our behalf. So the analogy is not so much to search through the data that's there, like a Google type example. The analogy is how do we build an agent or agents that serve each person and deliver that person just what they need at the right time. Um, and a lot of that work is already happening in the marketing um, marketing field, but there doesn't appear to be too much of that going on from what I can tell um, in our space, except I guess what we're, what we're trying to build ourselves. That's interesting. Like I think that marketing often leads the way in, in many of these sort of opening or emerging technologies. And it's interesting as well, because you think insurance companies would cotton onto this and say, hey, this is a really good idea and, and start to insist that people you know, spend more resources in these areas and, and build these applications that you're talking about, these interfaces. Mm, yeah, I, I often wonder if insurers are five years or hopefully faster from flipping around. I mean, at the moment, insurers are seen as these huge, big, scary businesses that have all this data on all these people. And I often wonder if they'll flip around one day and be kind of protectors of us all because um, their, their interests are our interests. And I, I do wonder if they should really put a lot of effort into trying to stop their people they're insuring from getting fat or getting sick or getting injured. Um, and I think it's kind of inevitable, really. Someone will, yeah. someone will do it. Uh, my last question, or one of the last questions, is Google wants to, to make everything, like all data in the world searchable. And so if they, could you see someone like Google moving into the space? I mean, they already live in our pockets in the form of Android. If they could index all the data in the world, uh, could you imagine them being able to deliver these sort of personalized notifications to us and having this uh, just sort of a, a passive thing in our pockets that sort of alerted us to as we move through the world? Perhaps. Um, there's, there's a lot of different competitor verticals that are kind of been touched on there. Um, so alerting from our perspective, I'm not worried about them as a competitor because our main function within a business, we're a B2B product basically for large businesses, but eventually servicing small businesses and then eventually the public, but, well, the data will be, but um, someone like Google, they're so big. I mean, they're such, what a great company, right? Like, so they've built, they've built something amazing based off the ultimate Liberian experience um, years and years ago and now they could pick and do whatever they want but I don't know if it'd come into our sphere there, there could be any number of competitors that tried to Hey Clint, I really want to thank you for taking the time to, to do this interview with me I, and I, I really enjoyed hearing about what you're doing and the, the problems you're solving and the way you're tackling it and I, I think it sounds like you've built something really really interesting there and I think the, the future in this space is you know, it's we're going to see a lot more of this. I'm I'm confident of that. But before I say goodbye to you, can you tell us where we can go to learn more about you and and what you're up to? Yeah, just safer me. So safer dot me, um, and look at our services there. That's probably the best place to start. I suspect. Excellent. Thanks so much for your time. Really appreciate it. No worries. 
And that's the end of another episode of the Mapscaping Podcast. My name is Daniel, and I really want to thank you for, for tuning in each week. It's greatly appreciated. If you want to reach out to me for whatever reason, you can find me on Mapscaping on Facebook and Twitter, MapView on Instagram, or swing by mapscaping.com, where we also have a full transcript of each episode of this podcast. Talk to you next week. Bye.